Welcome to the official Unpleasant Movies Postscript. The official 2001 authorized version of the postscript. Not to be confused with all the fake imitators that are trying to steal a postscript. I'm, uh, I'm so tired of these fakers yeah. everywhere trying to fake our precious postscripts. You really can't get away from them. No, I'm just so tired of all the haters and yeah. the fakers. <laughs> it's like um, whenever somebody starts talking about their haters, my mind starts to drift away from what you're saying. Mm-hmm. It's usually a reason people hate you. <laughs> may not be a good reason. <laughs> may not be a good may reason. Be a may terrible even, reason. May even be a bad reason, but it's yeah. fucking boring to listen to people complaining about their haters. You know, I get it if you get loads of death threats and shit. Yeah, probably that's not really haters. That's more like people who are threatening you. Like, yeah. that's a case for uh, the police. <laughs> like, yeah. It's not haters that you just whine about on no. Twitter or whatever. But I hate my haters. Mm. I truly do. I but guess. you were talking about uh, this Japanese... Oh, yeah, yeah. We were talking about uh, different YouTube channels and stuff. There's a very kind of pleasant YouTube channel that I tend to watch called Abroad in Japan, which is this uh, English guy. I think he moved to Japan kind of randomly. He was looking for something different to do with his life. And so he moved and uh, got a teaching job teaching English and um, did that for a while and then eventually he did like uh, some YouTube videos and that kind of picked up and he's kind of famous for YouTube videos like 10 things not to do in Japan, that sort of stuff. What are those 10 things? Well, one of the things he pointed out was don't eat while walking. Yeah, just mannerisms and what, which kind of things are frowned upon. But he's a really funny guy. Like uh, his videos are pretty uh, sardonic and he uses a lot of like sound effects like when you've done something wrong that sounds horrible uh, yeah yeah he, he does it in a really really nice way and yeah. he has a lot of those uh things where he shows you off-brand uses of english like uh foodstuffs that have some english slogans that really doesn't make sense at all a lot of those oddities of, of japanese culture yeah and he recently did one about taking a night train with a cabin where you sleep from Tokyo to an area uh, where they have like these big sand dunes, almost like a desert. Right. As a camel. His recent stuff is more like short documentaries, like travel documentary stuff. Very watchable, very pleasant. Nice. Yeah, mm. I like pleasant YouTube channels mm. that sort of take you places. Yeah. Speaking of dunes, mm. I'm pretty hyped about this new dune movie. This new dune movie, yeah. yeah. This looks cool. I like the new trailer. It looks pretty rad. Mm. Like I, I am pretty hyped for this yeah. uh, Villeneuve future classic. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's terrible. To me, it looks promising. The only thing that I would say as a potential letdown is probably still very good. But I have to say, I really love David Lynch's portrayal of the Harkonnen. I have no idea if it's accurate like the book. I've never read the books. But these disgusting, nasty fluids and uh, foul bodies and like the sores around the mouths, that kind of style. Yeah, it's great. Is maybe my favorite thing about that old movie. Um, I mean, I think Lynch's Dune is probably a bit undervalued. Like, in retrospect, it's pretty cool in a lot of ways. And it's kind of strange and doesn't quite work completely. But I think the most important thing about this new Dune movie is that Sting has to reprise his role. <laughs> that would be something. That would be something. Uh, yeah, because the casting of the old one is good. There's a lot of good actors and they have a lot of good roles. And like the art design is pretty juicy. Um, 
I guess it's always the thing with these big fantasy epics, you know, if it's adapted well or whatever. I don't really have a strong relationship with the books. And as a film, as you say, you know, it's not perfect, but there's a lot of things to enjoy about the old film. It's kind of uh, charming in its mm. own way. It's weird and, it's, and it's, ugly. <laughs> it is weird and ugly. Uh, in a good way. Totally. Well, so what was the deal like in that period with, I think Mick Jagger was supposed to have Sting's role. Yeah. Mick Jagger, I feel like he was like almost in so many movies, mm, but he never ended up in any good ones. Like he was supposed to be in that Werner Herzog movie too. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Was that... Well, um, like he's, he's always like cut out. <laughs> like which one know. was that? Was that the boats? Yeah, the one where they pushed the steamboat over the hill. Fitzgeraldo. Yeah, Fitzgeraldo. Good movie. Yeah, mm. it's, it's honestly great. Mm. And... uh did you see the clips of Mick Jagger and stuff? The other lead? Yeah, I have seen some. I mean, it's been ages. It's amazing how much worse it is. <laughs> okay. Like, it doesn't work at all. Uh, Mick Jagger has this role, which is not in the complete movie. Mm. The role was cut completely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like this assistant mm. of the main character. And um, I, I just saw the clip where they go to the clock tower and ring the bell. Yeah, and it's just, it has it, yeah. a completely different vibe. Mm -hmm. And it feels corny. Like it feels like a made-for-TV movie mm -hmm. in the Mick Jagger version. Yeah, it, it feels goofy and strange. Mm -hmm. But in the, in the finished version, it looks great. But Mick Jagger is such an interesting face and body language. Like I bet if he was cast right, he could be like a super known cult role or something. Yeah, totally. That's why I find it so strange. Like I always hear about him having the initial part and then something happens mm. and he's replaced by someone. And usually the one is replaced by does a sort of iconic role. I feel like he wanted to do the David Bowie bit. Like he wanted to do those cool well, and interesting cult role parts, yeah. but he never really got any. He never really did um, any. Nobody does it like yeah, David Bowie. Like I couldn't imagine Labyrinth with Mick Jagger. Well, I sort of could, but I think it would have been a way worse movie. It's interesting, like these musicians that do like these smaller acting gigs here and there. Bowie had some larger roles as well, but yeah, he has a lot of these interesting small roles that are kind of iconic. For sure. And also like showing up as himself and stuff mm. like in extras. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He has a great part there. Funny little fat man. <laughs> <laughs> the clown that no one laughed at. That's <laughs> uh, funny. And he's in Zoolander as yeah. the judge in yeah, the yeah, yeah. fashion runway competition. Yeah, that's great. He always had like these interesting bit parts mm. and also interesting like major parts. Mm. Yeah, he was a good actor. For sure. He was in Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, I think. It's true, yeah. Who's that director? Yeah, it's Oshima, The Realm of the Senses. Mm. That's fascinating. Mm. As I've told you previously, I, I tried rewatching Realm of the Senses. Mm. It's hard. Like, I can watch almost anything, I think, but it's just the extended sort of sex scenes. Like, it's just it's just very well shot porn. And, like, there's a good story there, too, but I don't know. And it's not that it's just sex. It's like, they do some weird-ass shit. Yeah, I guess it's like a natural fit for a podcast at some point. Yeah, I think we should probably discuss it. It's mm. very good. It's beautiful, too. Mm. It's a beautiful movie. I remember there was a controversy in Norway because they showed it on television way back. And I think there was like a discussion. Is this something that should be shown on TV? Oh, it, it was censored in a lot of places. It was censored in Japan, too. Mm. It wasn't a fully Japanese project. I don't recall if it was shot in Japan or not. Of course, the actors were Japanese, but yeah, I think I want to finish it. I think I I came to like a scene where the main character asks the guy she's she's with to like pee in her where his dick is. I was like, I, I'm out. I I need a fucking drink. Hmm. But um, <laughs> it has a lot of funny scenes too. Like this homeless guy who wants to get it on with this geisha, and she's like, show me your dick. And it's like <laughs> this tiny little dick. 
and she's like, okay, I'll give you a freebie. And he's like, he, he can't even get hard. And it's just pathetic. Ah, sad story. Yeah, sad story. Yeah, Ashima. Yeah, I need to watch more. Mm, definitely. One of these directors I haven't seen so much of. Yeah, but um, I don't know. I like I like Bowie as an actor. Uh, did you watch The Man Who Fell to Her? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really good. It's, he, a, it's a fucking weird movie. Yeah. It's cool. He is this really estranged alien. I mean, he's perfect yeah. as this weird alien mm. guy. I mean, that's what he is. Mm. It's kind of a role that also might have fit someone like Tilda Swinton, I feel. That kind of um, alien, estranged, a stiffness, but a cool to it as well. Yeah. Like, uh, Tilda Swinton does have that sort of Bowie vibe. Mm. But I always feel like I wish I could see Bowie in her roles mm. a lot of the times because I feel like he has he has this extra layer of charisma that uh, Tilda Swinton has a slightly different energy to him. A very different energy, I yeah. think. Uh, I really like her as an actor. She's also one of these actors who does a lot of interesting things. Like, she can do Marvel movies and Jim Jarmus at the same year, right? Yeah, she is great, and she has a lot of range. But she usually portrays quite weird characters. Mm. And I like that. Like, I don't think you have to be able to play every kind of character. Mm. Like, it's cool to be sort of a, a character actor, too. But what's nice about it, it, if you have a strong enough vibe, it allows you to be part of all sorts of different types of projects. I would say there's a lot of different types of characters she's portrayed, but she does have a, a kind of a vibe. Sometimes even big blockbuster movies needs uh, some of that energy. Uh. Yeah, for sure. Like, I remember she played the witch queen in the Narnia movies. Oh, that was good casting. That was great casting. I mean, too bad the movies aren't very good, mm, but uh, mm. she's great. Like, she's perfectly casted yeah. in that sort of, when you need this sort of off, mm. kind of strange role in a sort of major motion picture, mm. she's perfect for that. But I feel that like, she's she's always the sort of strange one in these motion pictures, mm. these blockbusters. Mm. And um, well, that is cool. I don't know. Like, I think like major motion pictures and these huge movies need to be weirder in, in general mm. instead of just throwing Tilda Swinton in there. Yeah. I mean, she's the best thing about that. Yeah. No, I only saw the first one. Yeah, I only saw the first one, too. It was pretty bad. Like, in compared to the BBC series, mm. which is terrible production-wise in the sense that they didn't have a lot of money to work with. But mm. the casting is perfect. Yeah. And it has so much heart. Mm. And the Hollywood version is just vilely version. The thing I really like about the casting of the kids in the BBC version is that they're kind of ordinary. They're yeah, they're goofy. so ordinary. They feel very sincere. I kind of hate Hollywood child casting. Yeah, it's they're disgusting. Al- they're always so... They're always too pretty. They look almost like, um, I don't know, like... Uh, Porcelain dolls. Like fake, yeah. fake children. Like, you know, these children competitions yeah, where yeah. you have like children's beauty pageants and stuff. It's like that. Yeah, they're not really allowed to be people in a way. They're just these cute objects yep. that uh, are supposed to invoke sympathy just with big eyes and being yeah. small. And it, also like children in Hollywood, like that's uh, mm. fucking, yeah. I mean, it's a story. Yeah, it's a story. It's a horrible story. <laughs> But at the same time, I mean, you've got more really good child actors these days than you've ever done before this across TV and film. The problem is just these big projects that have like a very specific idea. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of, um, it's kind of the opposite, but you know these old icon paintings, these Russian icon paintings and stuff? Like the way they would paint children is basically like grown-ups. Looks like Small, small grown-ups. Yeah, with the proportions all wrong and everything. Yeah, like in medieval art in general, 
children and babies are not portrayed as what they are. They just look like shrunken little people, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> shrunken little adults, and it's super off-putting. Yeah, it's really creepy, and they kind of look like really old things rather than really young things. Yeah. I think they're back on Tumblr, like back in the day, there mm. was this blog where like ugly medieval babies. <laughs> yeah. It was great. It was really that good. good. Just a collection of all these fucking weirdos. Mm. But yeah, it's strange how our sort of art in that period in the Western world sort of devolved in a sense mm. in the Dark Ages and the medieval times in the sense that it became less naturalistic. I mean, a lot of it had to do with religion and mm. how you were supposed to portray humanity and stuff. But it's interesting to see how it sort of quote unquote devolved. There's a lot of beautiful medieval art too, you know, oh, yeah. a lot of beautiful art from the Dark Ages and stuff. But the way humans were portrayed, it's just strange to see from the sort of frescoes at Herculaneum and Pompeii to the sort of stilted and stiff figures of mm. the early medieval period. Well, they played a very different type of role. They weren't paintings in the same sense. They were functional items, right? There was something you used and they had a very specific role to play. Well, that too, but art in the period was mm. instructional, right? It yeah. wasn't meant to be just decorative. Mm. It was supposed to be 100% for the glory of God. Mm. You know, in the medieval period, you didn't paint secular pictures. Mm. Whereas in the Roman period, you painted whatever the fuck you wanted. And yeah, usually it was... The just, patrons paid you for. Yeah. yeah. It was more of a decorative mm. thing or like picturesque or or funny or grotesque mm. or whatever. And you see it too in like the mummies in the, the later classical period from Egypt. They have these super naturalistic faces painted on the sarcophagi. It's interesting, like the quality of art. Yeah, I mean, it's not as if talented artists is a new thing. There's been so many interesting variations of what's, you know, beautiful. I mean, some of the oldest cave paintings are like gorgeous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Make it Altamira and all these places. And like really impressive in terms of anatomy and observation and Yeah, shape, shape and movement, especially yeah. like just the yeah. fucking almost like iconic shapes of animals and movement. And mm. it's so, so surreal to see images that are that old that immediately resonate with you mm. and convey some sort of truth. Did you see the Van uh, Herzog documentary, Cave of Forgotten Dreams? I did. It's great. I did not see the 3D version. Mm. Though. I just saw the regular version. I mean, it's still good. I, I saw the 3D version one, and it's a very basic form of 3D, but it does kind of convey just the feeling of, like, the textures. Yeah, because the shape of mm. what the paintings are on mm. is interesting, like the rock shape, rock yeah. formations and stuff. But uh, honestly, I'll, I'll watch any documentary Werner Herzog does, because yeah. yeah. they're just always great and yeah. sort of weird. Mm. <laughs> He always has this viewpoint, this way of looking at things that's just slightly strange mm. and interesting. Mm. Like he can take something that most people would not find interesting and find an interesting way of going about discussing it mm. and making a documentary on it. He kind of marries a lot of things from fiction into his documentaries, I feel like. His themes of the obsessed character. Yes, like, for, uh, for sure, for sure. And like, sometimes he is the obsessed character himself. Yeah. But I, I love his way of like his soliloquies and monologues and, and strange mm. stuff that almost like it seems almost obnoxious in the way <laughs> that he sort of turns it into this poetic mm. sort of uh, meander when he's like talking about penguins or, mm. <laughs> or some shit but i find it super endearing though i just love the way he talks about stuff well it's very likable he's super charismatic and yeah. you always get the feeling that this is a guy who's lived a life and he has a perspective that's interesting yeah but he also has this genuine interest in stuff yeah his like childlike wonder of mm. nature's mysteries mm. and, and the mysteries of mankind and, and everything is just a fucking interesting subject to him and that's 
contagious mm. like you feel it in this documentary you know about his uh i'm not sure if he does it anymore but a few years ago he had this uh rogue film school have you heard about this i think i've heard about it yeah well <laughs> I, I knew someone who went to that and the funny thing is the things that he teaches you is much more like wildlife survival yeah i've like heard that i've heard it's bring. more of a survival school than yeah. anything else and more about kind of perspective and integrity maybe and how to practically be in a forest and make a film yeah and less about lenses and the technical mm. like those technical aspects of mm. filmmaking and i feel like in a sense that's kind of an important like viewpoint mm. like, like it's not just about the technique like it's more about the experience of movie making and the whole process is so much more than what you see yeah. on camera you know and i guess it kind of says something about him like what are the things that i feel i can teach others i mean you have your way of seeing the world i can teach you some of the practical and some of my ideas i mean he has some of the craziest film projects of all time like yeah. his jungle movies yeah, yeah, yeah. they're so interesting and have some of the most interesting anecdotes so, mm. <laughs> so i mean if i had gone through those experiences i would be fucking telling those stories every opportunity <laughs> i could get like so funny yeah. hearing him talk about this he's a great storyteller but he's also a guy that a lot of weird things and horrible things have happened to yeah he's been shot while he was interviewed yeah like, he's experienced so much fucking horrible stuff and weird stuff like the tribesman when he was in i think brazil mm. Uh, who offered to kill Klaus Kinski <laughs> and stuff because he was being such a horrible human being. What a dude. Yeah, what a dude. And, uh, it's so weird to see him gain like even more mainstream success with like uh, the Mandalorian part. I mean, he's perfect for that role too. Like he's an interesting actor, mm, yeah. even though he, he's basically himself. He has a really nice role in um, Julian Donkey Boy, which is like an American dogma film by um, Harmony Corinne where he plays this really aggressive and abusive father. He keeps shouting at, he's like super hostile. Oh, that's scary. Really sort of intense character that's shouting and forcing his will on his I son. I mean, uh, a hostile Werner Herzog, that sounds terrifying. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty intense in that film. Uh, I haven't seen it. I mean, I love Harmony Corinne, but I haven't seen that movie. Mm. I, I think I heard that it wasn't, it got kind of mixed. It was kind of received in mixed uh, Well, way. I think well, some of the problem is if you're following up Gummo, you know, there's a lot of expectations. Gummo is such a great movie. I liked uh, Julian Donkey Boy, but yeah. it did get mixed reviews, I think. Also, you know, Harmony Korean, such a weird filmmaker, does so many interesting things. Truly. I mean, he was a protege of Werner Herzog, right? In what sense? No, I think like Werner Herzog sort of taught him a lot of stuff about movie making. And oh. uh, I think I read that he was sort of a protege of Werner Herzog at some point. Oh, that's pretty cool. Mm. I mean, maybe in that film where he was working. Yeah, then... No, I think it was earlier than that, actually. Okay. But I don't know. I mm. This is like something I vaguely recall. Well, that's really. interesting. I mean, there are some similarities. Harmony Corinne is also very willing to do very different types of film projects. Yeah, they're usually quite cool projects. Or sometimes decidedly not cool, like Trash Humpers. Yeah, but it's sort of cool in that sort of punk vibe of going about a project it like definitely that. definitely has know? a punk vibe, yeah. And maybe it's something we'll talk about in the podcast as well. As it's, it's... I think you've discussed Trash Humpers. It sounds definitely unpleasant. It is... Um... It's unpleasant in a few different ways, but also quite interesting. It's not an easy watch, I would say. Who cares about an easy watch? Give me the difficult watch. Yeah, oh, I have so many of them. <laughs> Give me the gold watch after working at the company for 50 years. Yeah, 
You get a gold, unpleasant watch that it doesn't tell time. No, it just just tells you off. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> I wonder what the time is. Fuck off. <laughs> yeah. Oh, looks like it's time for me to go to hell. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's quite likely in the future. Golden watch of doom. Doom in the old sense of the word, which means fate. Yeah, your doom, right? Did you play the the game Doom? Uh, which one? Like any of them. I did play the old one back in the day, and yeah. I played a little bit of 2016, and I played some of Eternal. And, you know, I really like it. I really like the monster sign and the kind of the world building. My problem is that these days, somehow, I'm not so engaged by first-person shooters anymore. And maybe that's one of the most interesting variations of that kind of thing for me. They kind of bridge a bit of strategy in, like, the intense shooting stuff. Like, the music's great. The music is incredible yeah i love the soundtrack yeah. for 2016 mm. i feel like I, i'll probably want to play it some more it's quite interesting i saw a presentation from one of the developers mm. of doom of how they went about making the gameplay engaging and make it the opposite of a sort of cover shooter and how you would sort of incentivize being aggressive mm. instead of being defensive mm. in the way you played the game i thought it was very interesting yeah, yeah, because it does have a very good dynamic, like the back and forth in terms of what kind of weapons you use and what kind of enemies you're facing. And Yeah, and, and it's very well thought out in yeah. the design process, mm. it seems to me, like the presentation I saw. Mm. It's a lot of discussion and thought about how they went about doing the game design. Mm. That sort of stuff appeals a lot to me, mm. even though the genre of you know FPS is my favorite genre. I think when it's done well, it can be really, really cool. Yeah, I saw a really good breakdown. I can't quite remember where, where they took like one level or what would you say, like a, a scene, like a monster confrontation where they were talking about when they release new monsters. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. that's the one I saw, I think. Yeah, that was a really interesting breakdown of how they put that stuff together. Yeah. It's always interesting to see sort of behind the scenes of game development mm. and uh, the thought processes behind mm. it. Because there's usually a lot more work to it than you'd think. Than meets uh, the eye. Yeah, yeah. I've been watching a lot of game stuff lately. I've been watching a lot of speedruns. All right. And it's very interesting to see like how many uses you can have of an old game, like how you can recontextualize it, put it into different scenarios. Like I'm not sure if you know about like randomizers. Vaguely. Basically, you take game elements and you sort of switch them around in a randomizer. So let's say you're playing uh, a Zelda game. Mm -hmm. and, like you'll find the hookshot where you find the bow or mm. you'll find like uh, a rupee where you'll find the master sword and like everything's okay, just okay. shuffled yeah. around. Yeah. So you're never quite sure <laughs> what to do. And, and there's different ways of doing that too. Like you'll mm -hmm. have randomizer with logic, which means you can finish the game no matter what. And then you have randomizers without logic where an item that you need can be placed behind an item that's inaccessible because you need the item mm. behind it to open the, the gate or whatever. Mm. And some people who are really good at the game and know how to abuse glitches and stuff sort of find ways of going around that. And it's mm. super interesting to see the sort of technical ability and creativity needed to play the game at that level. Mm. Because a lot of those seeds, as they're called, like you have a seed and that's how the randomizer sets it up. Because nothing is random, you know, in computers you mm. need an actual seed or whatever. So it's interesting to see like how some people can go about actually playing an impossible seed using like insane glitches and knowledge of the game to go beyond what's like deemed possible by logic randomizers. Hmm. It's just interesting to see how much you can break a game, how much enjoyment you can get out of a game, even though it's like been 20, 30 years since it's been released, like finding new ways of playing it, finding new ways of contextualizing it. 
it's fascinating. There's like this whole community is just built around this stuff. I've been totally addicted to watching that shit lately. Yeah, it is interesting because it's not playing the game in the sense that... Well, it's not the intended way of playing the game. Yeah, it's a very different gaze, as you would say, on like that space and your relation to it. You kind of look at it completely differently. You're not engaged in like the story or character or the situation. No, it's almost you're purely looking at, game. Yeah, you're looking at the technical things of how things interact with each other. Right, uh, because you're sort of building a new game of an old game. Mm. Like at that point, it's no longer about the story, right? Even though most people who like have their favorite game, they like to play randomized mm. or stuff or whatever. They're really into the characters and they really love the music, mm. especially like when you randomize the music and you put it in different contexts. <laughs> it also changes the way you experience a setting. If you have a dungeon that has this type of music and suddenly it's like peaceful music, you have a mm. totally different atmosphere. Mm. So it's super interesting to see like the way these modal changes of individual game elements sort of make up a new sort of setting and mm. totally recontextualize stuff in a way that's very interesting and completely different from the normal game experience. Yeah, and it kind of removes a lot of the power from the game creator themselves. I mean, it's not the same as an adaptation. No, it's almost like a democratization of, yeah. of gaming. Like you're taking it from the developers and you're doing unintended things. And like, especially game developers like, or game studios like Nintendo, they're usually very strict mm. about what you can do with their games. So it's almost like this anarchist uh, sort of uh, communal thing that grows around these games that are supposed to be played in a very specific way. Yeah, I mean... I think you could draw a comparison to street art, for example, mm. where you're kind of reclaiming space, where you're changing your relationship to like architecture and public space on your own uh, premise. Yeah, or like, what's it called? You know, like anarcho-gardening or whatever. Like when you take spaces that are unwanted and ugly and you fucking mm. plant stuff there, even though you're not allowed to plant stuff mm. there. I love that way of circumnavigating the rules of the rules that are in place of like uh, landscape decoration and city development and mm. stuff and just saying fuck it we're gonna make this place more beautiful more likable better to be in but we're breaking rules we're doing something illegal but ultimately obviously it's better it's very punk it's very punk it's very punk and it's very i don't know it's it's heartwarming but it's also kind of cyberpunk that you have to do that <laughs> like that you can't just plant uh, a beautiful uh, plant instead of this barren shit because some sort of external force uh, disallows you to do that like the government you have to go through regulations so it has to be this disgusting place instead it's kind of dystopian in a, in a way yeah and it's interesting like it's kind of a relationship like in the medium that's similar between architecture and games that you have a space you don't have that in film or in music in the same way like the way you interact yeah, a, there's a, a sense space. of space. Uh, yeah. and guerrilla gardening is what it's called, I think. Yeah. Where you just like throw seed bombs places. Yeah, and fucking, yeah. It's punk as fuck. Mm. It's like the movie Hackers, you know, hack the planet, fucking plant the planet. Like, there was this trend of um, textile work, or like trees with... Uh, with yeah, you'd like uh, knit yeah, like yeah. cozies for like uh, stoplights and, That's and right. trees. And... Knitted works for trees and stuff. Yeah. Um, that's kind of similar in a way, kind of recontextualizing your space. Yeah, that's even more like art because that's pretty useless in the sense that it's not providing like shade or whatever. It's not potentially could I expect, but but it's really cool nonetheless, mm. and it creates an interesting space to mm. be in. Like I love it. It's fucking awesome. Just ways of changing and decorating public spaces. Knit punk. Knit punk. Is that a thing? 
I'm pretty sure it's a thing. You didn't invent it, but maybe you can join it. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm not a, a knitter. Me neither. Although I wish I was, because knitting seems fucking cool, like creating fucking garments and stuff out of fucking... String. String and nothing? Damn, like that's some magical shit right there. Strings or nothing. Yeah. Is that a quote? Or? I, don't I don't know. That's what Gollum says uh, as his last attempt for Bilbo and Riddles in the Dark. Strings or nothing. It reminds me of... Uh, What's it called in Game of Thrones? The Sparrow or whatever? He's like yeah. the, the cult leader. I don't remember the actor's name, but he has a part in uh, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, the Terry Gilliam movie. And he says to uh, Baron Munchausen as he flies away in, in a hot air balloon, you won't get far in hot air in fantasy. It reminds me of that. His name is Jonathan Price. Jonathan Price, yeah. Right. You won't get far on with hot air in fantasy. Yeah, that's great. You won't get far with strings and nothing. Yarn, I think it's called anyway. So you won't get far with yarn and nothing. Baron von Munchausen, that's a bit of an overlooked film. I really like it. And often people are throwing shade at it uh, as one of the lesser Gilliam movies. It's one of my favorite movies, actually. It's I great. love the set design on that yeah. movie. And the prosthetics and makeup. And honestly, the story is so strange and cool. It's so fun and weird and playful. And also the sort of... Uh, the narrative of things, like the narrator is so unreliable. Mm. Like it's not just an unreliable narrator. Like there's levels to the unreliability mm. and the way it mixes fantasy and fiction mm. in like these different stages and levels and how he gets young and old. Yeah. It's so weird. It's really imagination that's the core of it and like storytelling and playfulness. Yeah, it has this playfulness. Like we discussed with uh, the Greasy Strangler, mm. there's this sort of imminent like playfulness that just infuses the entire project. And it's interesting that Terry Gilliam pulled that off because it was quite a cursed production, I think, mm. and uh, cost a huge amount of money mm. and... Uh, it's interesting when it's such a giant production, the way you, he still manages to make it feel lighthearted and playful and just adventurous. Of course, there's a lot of people who hate that movie, but I think it's Well, great. they're wrong. Yeah, they're wrong. I think they're dead wrong. And I will fight them in mortal <laughs> combat. He's such an enthusiast, Terry Gilliam. Like, he has so much energy and curiosity and playfulness. And there's also this sarcastic, sardonic, like, there's a bit of a self-deprecating British... Uh, for sure, for sure. He's like this perfect blend of the American and the British humor, I think. Yeah. yeah, for sure. He's great. I love his stuff. I mean, often his movies kind of fail for me, but they're like noteworthy in the way they fail. Like they're interesting <laughs> in what they do and they're always so ambitious. Mm -hmm. So like even when it doesn't work for me, I can't fault him. Like it's admirable in like its audacity and uh, ambition. Mm -hmm. I really uh, like him as a movie maker. Yeah, me too. I mean, it's always felt to me like there's kind of a split like the film's before and after the millennium. Yeah, I agree. Um, but I really want to rewatch some of those newer films. I kind of have a feeling that I might, uh, like a reappraisal might be good. I haven't seen his Don Quixote yet, but I'm looking forward to it. I haven't seen his Don Quixote either. I'm kind of dreading it. I feel like there's a great documentary on that movie, mm. or the way it was supposed to be made. Yeah, Lost in La Mancha. His original actor was so perfect. I think Jonathan Price is... Don Quixote yeah. in, in the remake, the final, the ultimate version. I don't yeah. know what you'd call finished, it. The, the finished, finished, finished project. While he is great, and I do like him as an actor, he, he's just not the same. When I read Don Quixote, the person I was imagining was definitely like the original intended actor for mm. Terry Gilliam's movie. But sadly, that was not meant to be. Mm. 
Well, honestly, like that documentary, the unmaking of is a great documentary. Uh, Lost in La Mancha is. Uh, I mean, that might have been better than even Terry Gilliam's own original version of because it's so good. It is a meta film on madness of Don Quixote himself. Too. And the madness of Terry Gilliam and the madness yeah. of movie making and the audaciousness and ambition of doing these mm. impossible projects. And of course it ties in with Don Quixote's, you know, madness and, and ambition and megalomania. Mm. The documentary really reminds me of Jodorowsky's Dune mm. to uh, have a throwback to what we were discussing earlier. As documentaries, they're sort of describing these impossible projects that were doomed to fail, but mm. were just uh, noteworthy <laughs> in their failure. Also, they kind of mythologize their respective filmmakers. They kind of build a story around like the image we have of who they are, like what they've done and the grandiose nature of their, their visions and stuff. Yeah. Also kind of reminds me of the documentary on Klaus Kinski, which yeah. shows a lot of the movie-making aspects and that sort of incredible mad way of going about these impossible mm -hmm. projects. Of course, Herzog pulled them off, which is <laughs> incredibly impressive. Yeah, that's impressive. Because they were at the point of falling apart so many times. Mm. Um, Steel will that guy. Yeah. And again, like the sort of uh, symbolized by pushing that fucking steamboat, mm. the Fitzgeraldo, mm. over the mountain, which they did in real life. Like, the madness of it. It's like the Sisyphean task mm. of doing this impossible movie project. But then I would also say, like, the documentary of Fitzcarraldo is almost better than the film. Like, the film is good, but the documentary is really amazing. Yeah, yeah. There's a documentary on that. Behind the scenes. Uh... Yeah. It's great. But, I mean, the whole project is just fascinating. Like, the movie is great, but it's even better when you know the madness behind mm. it. Do you have a favorite feature fiction film about movie making? About movie making. Well, like, uh, movie making is like a central... I think maybe Barton Fink. Mm. I think that's great. It's one of my favorite Coen Brothers movies. Yeah, it's great. It's just super tightly written, tightly made. And uh, John Goodman as this fucking crazy salesman. And uh, what's his name? Torturo? John Torturo. Yeah, he is... One of his best roles ever, I mm. think. It's sad that he's not more of a leading man in more movies because mm. he's uh, an amazing actor with a lot of depth and uh, he's just a quality thespian. But yeah, yeah that's probably my, like, my favorite. There's there's so many good ones, though. Mm. What's the Tim Burke movie? Ed Wood. That's it's a classic. A, yeah, that's really good. That's maybe not his definite best, but it's definitely one of his best films, I think. Yeah, for sure. It's also very tight and very funny. Mm. And of course, based on real life absurdities. So that's also a really good movie about movie making. I don't know. What would you say? Like, well, One of my favorite ones is just a touch more obscure, I think. It's called Living in Oblivion. And it's about a movie production. There's like different parts of it follow different uh, characters' perspective on, on this uh, movie production. And the director is uh, played by Steve Buscemi. I think I saw that actually. Yeah, it, it's really fun kind of indie movie about like deconstructing like life on set on a film. Like there's this great scene. I think this is uh, at least the first time I saw Peter Dinklage as an actor. Yeah. This is really good scene where it's kind of like a dream scene. And he's supposed to come out and he's wearing this funny uh, clothes and uh, the director's kind of trying to get him to do some weird things and the camera's going around. And then Peter Dinklage suddenly, you know, starts talking about, what the hell is this? This has nothing to do with dreams. Have you ever seen a dwarf in your dreams? <laughs> this bullshit. <laughs> Fuck this bullshit. And he's that's kind so of disgruntled. That's so true, too. Yeah. Like, we're not fucking, like, I feel like David Lynch, he really, like, sold the idea of dwarfs in dreams. <laughs> it's uh, sort of a weird trope, really. Yeah. Yeah, as an apropos, 
Herzog has a film called Even the Dwarves Started Small. A great title. Yeah, it's a very interesting movie. Really weird, very chaotic and intense. Uh, but yeah, Living in Oblivion, that's um, a bit of a hidden gem. It's it's quite fun, well made, well acted. A lot of these scenes that are poignant. Yeah, I think I saw it. I've definitely seen Steve Buscemi as a director in a movie before. And that, I remember, was really good. But I, I'm not sure if that's... I thought that was a short movie, but... Well, I think he's actually played the director several times. Yeah. So. I mean, isn't he a director too? Hasn't he directed? Yeah, he has. He's definitely done television episodes, but I believe he's done the features as well. Yeah, there's there's like some actors who you just, most people aren't aware that they directed movies. Like Danny DeVito, for instance, has directed some really cool movies. Uh, yeah, some famous movies. Yeah. I like Danny DeVito. He's so funny. I love him as an actor and I love him as a director and as a person. He just seemed really, really personable. He does. Yeah. He's fucking great in uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Oh, he's so good in that. Yeah. I was about to say, like, the film I know that he's directed is Matilda, the Roald Dahl. Yeah, Matilda is a classic yeah. adaption of the Roald Dahl story. I mean, it's, it's the one only of the really best uh, Roald Dahl films, I think. Yeah. The main, like, discrepancy is just that it takes place in America instead of Britain. Yeah. It's so true to the book mm. and the spirit of the book. Mm. Uh, and it's just visually super funny. And mm. yeah, it's a great, great children's mm. movie. And you can watch it as, as an adult, too. It's just heartwarming. Yeah, I saw it not too long ago, actually. And, you know, I often have issues with children's movies because they're so pandering and whatever. But yeah. uh, this one's... You know what I'd love to see a really good uh, Roald Dahl book adapted is um, George's Marvelous Medicine. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. With this young boy who's kind of mixing kitchen wares with shampoos and... Uh, it's like the classic thing you do as a kid where you, like, mix everything together. Yeah. And you get this magic... Uh, yeah, that's, that's a great story. And like horrible this, grandmother. Yeah, right? she's so nasty and evil. Also, The Witches is kind of a cool movie. Oh, the old one, you mean? Yeah, the yeah. old one, yeah. Mm. Not the new one. Nicholas Rogue. Yeah, it's classic. It actually has uh, beautiful shots of the Norwegian town Bergen. Yeah. Beautifully represented in that film. Yeah, really? and very seldomly represented. It's mm. nice to see some Norwegian representation. Well, we, we love that shit. I have to say... Norwegian films that represent like Norwegian cities, you know, really they look as good as they do in that film. Yeah, it looks beautiful in, mm. in The Witches. There's just not a lot of stories set in that sort of... Well, there are, but they're not made into giant movies. Yeah, or particularly good movies. Yeah, yeah the, the, the Witches uh, with their really nasty, horrible makeup. Yeah, they're great. Yeah. The only thing that sucks about that movie is the ending. They completely changed the ending. Into being this uh, yeah, sort true. of heartwarming, uh, yeah. good ending. Whereas in the book, it's this kind of horrible. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of sad. <laughs> kind of tragically beautiful, but yeah. sad ending. I remember when I watched that film as a kid, I was really excited because they had some of the same Ghostbuster toys as we did. Yeah. Like this skeleton with the bulging eyes. Yeah. And the ribcage where you could trap a Ghostbuster inside. Some good toys. That was really fun. I do think that's a pretty cool movie. Like other good Roald Dahl movies. Of course, Fantastic Mr. Fox is great. Fantastic Mr. Fox is uh, probably my favorite Wes Anderson movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It has such heart, that mm. movie too. Like, mm. And I feel like that's kind of a problem with some of Wes Anderson movies. They don't have a heart, oh, really? even though they're like, they're supposed to be quirky and mm. sort of stylized. I feel they have a bit of a coldness to them sometimes. Oh. I don't know. Well, I quite like his films, like in particular... I think he had like this really good streak from Royal Tenenbaums and Life Aquatic. I mean, I didn't I, like Moonrise Kingdom very much. No, I, I enjoy most of his movies and they usually look 
gorgeous. Mm. And uh, I'm not a huge fan of his sort of rotating cast of like all stars. A lot of them are, of course, great actors, but I feel like it almost becomes distracting sometimes. Mm. Like uh, Hotel Budapest or, or Grand Budapest Hotel. Yeah, Grand Budapest Hotel, which is also a beautiful movie, but mm. I don't know. Well, I'd, I'd like to see him change his game up a little bit. That yeah, was it so almost becomes it. like a stereotype of himself at times. Yeah. Uh, and the good thing about Fantastic Mr. Fox, that was the perfect way for him to change up his game. For and, sure. And um, Isle of Dogs also is beautiful, but not as tight and dynamic as Mr. Fox. Yeah. Well, that's hard to do. Mr. Fox is just a really, really but good movie, in my opinion. Great. and has just some great characters. Mm, like the, great the wolf too. or whatever, snapping yeah. his fingers. Mm. It's so yeah, The rat. The rat, yeah. That's Willem Dafoe. Oh, he's oh so God, Willem Dafoe as a rat. That's his perfect part. <laughs> the imagery is so cool and like the characterization. And you know, he managed to do something like this is one of the things about like live action directors doing animation. They understand certain things that I feel a lot of like animation directors that they don't kind of have like he understands how to get his actors to do the greatest possible work like i think they went out to a farm before they started animating anything and they just acted out the scenes rough and tumbling about and kind of really <laughs> re really playing out the characters with sound equipment that sounds like a really good idea it's and something that idea. most directors probably wouldn't think of well it's that kind of thing you need to give vitality to voice work i think yeah i think wes anderson is a really talented director and he has done a lot of interesting things mm. i don't know i just sometimes i have this feeling that the visualness and the sort of the the craftsmanship mm. sort of overshadows sometimes the storytelling mm. at some points and sometimes but well he's very particular right he has these very specific ideas of what things should look like and things should be and that can yeah like become... these centered shots mm. It can become rigid, I think, and that's... And also kind of, kind of repetitive at times yeah, yeah. with the uh, imagery and, mm. and stuff, even though it's beautiful and gorgeous, mm. which is kind of a lame critique. <laughs> Maybe he should do like a video game or something. Dude, I'd love to see him do a video game. Mm. That would be really cool. You should definitely like, do some more offbeat stuff. But I mean, he is a kind of particular person, so I'm mm. not sure. I mean, there's, there's a growing trend of like filmmakers doing... Video I mean, uh, I'd be interested to see him do a, like a, a series mm. or something. That would also be yeah. really cool. Could be, yeah. I think mm. he could do that. Mm. He, he could pull that off. Well, yeah, he, he writes most of his movies. Mm. I mean, he does it in collaboration yeah, with yeah, other... Yeah. Like, I think yeah. he's uh, collaborated a bit with Noah Baumbach. Yeah, and he's done a lot with uh, Roman Coppola. Yeah. And I think he wrote Royal Tenenbaums with Owen Wilson. <laughs> so, yeah, he has a lot of writing partners. But he does a lot of work on his own movies, and I respect that i think he's probably a really good collaborator i uh, mean he seems like a super nice collaborator yeah. i mean there has to be a reason why all these big names keep returning again and again and again to his movies i think it's also partly because he's good at seeing people for what they can do and how they can contribute like a good director really understands the dynamics of people and and how you can put that to use yeah Though I always find it strange when people like insist on using like these huge stars mm. in everything when there's so many talented actors out there. Well, it's often about the bank, though. Yeah, the bankability is definitely a point. But like his latest movie, like The French Dispatch, is like just filled with these A-list celebrities. Well, you know what that kind of reminds me of? It's almost like um, a musical festival or something gathering all your friends for like a fun creative thing it feels almost more like that i mean maybe it's a good film i have no idea but i've heard good things about it it feels 
a bit like what Adam Sandler does. Like he has this giant posse of friends who he gets together with and travels to a place and has a nice time. Although I feel like Wes Anderson's projects are way more planned out and serious <laughs> in their sort of artistic integrity meticulous. and stuff. Very meticulous. But yeah, it does feel like this very positive experience for everybody involved. And also it kind of reminds me of these huge directors who always like work with the same actress again and again and again, like mm. Kurosawa and, mm. and Bergman, mm. you know, and they're steady stable of incredible actors mm. of course in in those cases i feel like the both their actors were like mostly famous for their movies mm. whereas wes anderson uses like actors who are famous for so many things well he kind of picks people up after the famous like yeah sort of maybe uh jason Schwartzman would be the exception but uh, yeah owen wilson was not yeah, very yeah. famous owen wilson too. jason Schwartzman, they kind of they came up yeah. sort of with him yeah but a lot of the times he picks like character actors that are already iconic yeah like Tilda Swinton, we mm. talked about uh, so many famous ones, mm. but movie making, it's a doozy. It's a doozy. <laughs> it's just a lot of, uh, what's the word, bullshit artists? Yeah, bullshit artists, Yeah. as per Jim Hosking. Yeah, who's able to be the best bullshit artist? Mm. I call bullshit on that. Yeah. And I call bullshit on this podcast. Yeah, fuck this shit. <laughs> We've had enough. Anyway. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. If you would like to get in touch, send us an email at unpleasantmovies at protonmail.com. The music for this episode was made by Umulium. That's Euskarning and Sverre Ogor. That's me. And the artwork for this podcast is made by me, Thomas Imusen Barbara. And with that, we'll say adios. Adios. And have a pleasant day. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Goodbye.